Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Caliendo to our show. Dr. Caliendo is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. Hi, Stephen. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Oh, it's so great to be with you. It's uh, it's really an honor. I look you know, through the guests and listen to episodes, and uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful group to be associated with. So thank you for inviting me. Well, great. Well, tell me a little bit about North Central College and why students select your institution. Yeah, sure. North Central is a, uh, a four-year uh, comprehensive liberal arts institution in, in uh, the Chicagoland area. We're about uh, just short of 30 miles uh, southwest of the city. Um, it's, uh, we were founded in 1861, um, and uh, we uh, have been in, uh, on this campus, though, for just about uh, 10 years fewer than that. Um, uh, but, um, you know, the, the campus has grown a lot. We're in a historic area in downtown Naperville. Uh, it's a beautiful campus. Uh, so if you ever make it out this way, I'm happy to <laughs> happy to show you around. Um, students come for a variety of reasons. I have to tell you, we we um, when I say historically now, I'm talking about my history, which is about almost 20 years with the institution. But we've largely drawn uh, from the region. Uh, most of our students are from um, Illinois or specifically either northern, northern or central Illinois. We get some students from Wisconsin and Indiana and Iowa as well. Um, as our, um, we, we have a long history of, ac- of athletic excellence, uh, particularly in, in cross country and track and field. And so students would come from all over the Midwest to, to, to run with our coaches and, um, and participate there. And in the last 10 years, and specifically uh, the, the last uh, three or four, uh, we've excelled in division three football. Uh, we have national championship uh, two of the last three seasons, and we were in the championship game two years ago, but but fell short. And so we're getting a wider uh, geographic draw as a result of the the you know the press that you get from having a high profile uh, success at a high profile uh, athletic team like football. Um, but it's, you know, students come um, for the same reason students pick most small private colleges. I think is that they want uh, direct access to faculty. Um, we have uh, approximately half of our students are identified as first generation college students, um, which is, you know, as you know, you've been in this game for a while. It's a relatively new term. I, I also was a first generation college student, although I wasn't a first generation college student. I was a kid whose parents didn't go to college. <laughs> it's not the same. I was we didn't have a name for it. And I was sort of uh, embarrassed uh, to let people know that my folks didn't go to college. But we really have a, a culture here where students embrace it. Uh, with clubs and t-shirts and, and disciplinary work. So it's, um, you know, the, the, I think that the students come for access to faculty. And so having great faculty is an important part of what we do. Oh, great. Well, well, what's new at the college? My goodness, what a time you caught me at. Even pandemic aside, uh, so much change. We have, um, we are currently in the search uh, for our 11th president. So as you know, we're about 160 year old institution, but we've only had 10 presidents. Um and um, the, the president that, that the last came uh, was here for approximately 10 years. And a lot of change came uh, with him and with the provost uh, that he hired. We moved in that period, in the last eight years, um, from a quarter calendar system to a semester system. Uh, and we moved from a three credit hour base to a four credit hour base. Uh, we moved from a, um, a faculty advising model to professional advisors. 
uh, we did the we redid the entire gen ed um and uh and we've um committed ourselves to growth in graduate programs which is something we should probably talk about just in terms of being a small college the the financial necessity but also mission consistency sure. with uh, adding specific graduate programs. And so uh, lots new in, in, in the College of Arts in, and a lot of those graduate programs are in, in the health sciences. So they're not in the College of Arts and Sciences. They're in occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, you know, we have a program in athletic training, uh, uh, physician assistant, those types of things. Uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences, I'm really focused on the undergraduate experience and continue to do that. Um, what it means to be a comprehensive liberal arts college, of course, is that you hold fast to the liberal arts mission, but you um, uh, we offer majors in pre-professional areas. Uh, and so unlike a pure liberal arts school, we do have you know business students and education students. And even in the College of Arts and Sciences, um, in addition to actuarial science and journalism, uh, in the last five years, uh, it was my charge to add four-year engineering programs. And so we have engineering, uh, computer engineering, mechanical engineering and uh, electrical engineering at North Central College now four-year programs. Uh, and so along with neuroscience and environmental studies, those are those are the the new programs that that, I, that are under my umbrella. Oh, great. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, what was the path like for you becoming a dean at North Central College? Yeah, I sometimes think that I'll, I'll write a book someday called The Reluctant Administrator, <laughs> which, you know, the more the longer I do this, the, the, I, th I think I come to believe maybe those the, those of us who are reluctant to do it, uh, maybe in, in the best position, that's who you want doing it. Um, uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with having ambition on the administrative side. I think there's a lot of value there, but I did not. And I, quite frankly, I still do not. Uh, have that. I came to North Central College as a senior faculty member. Uh, I moved mostly for personal reasons, geographic. I had a, I was at a great school uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, that I really enjoyed there, Avila University. It was a wonderful place. But um, my wife and I had divorced. We, uh, we I have a, I had a young daughter who was about ready to start kindergarten, and I just needed to be closer. And so I applied for faculty positions uh, and was hired on the faculty at North Central College in 2005 as associate professor of political science. Um, and um, uh, you know, at a place like this, we, we, especially at that time, we do it more now under my leadership, but but, but my predecessor uh, did not like to hire senior level faculty. Uh, he was suspicious that anybody who's already tenured somewhere was like just trying to leverage a job off, you know, leverage higher salary at their current location. So he pretty much stayed away. So it was kind of a big deal. And, and they also hired two of us for one position. Um, there was only one position open and, and I think they had the person they wanted and they were going to hire her and they did. Uh, and they hired me on top of that. And I think it was because there was a belief that I might be able to contribute to the college as a senior faculty member quickly. And, and I did. Um, I, um, I, I wasn't brought in with tenure. Of course, small colleges almost never, never do that. I was on a fast track to tenure. If it was four years, it wasn't that fast <laughs> after I was already seven <laughs> years after my PhD, it didn't feel yeah. fast at the time. Um, but, um, and then, but the year after I was eligible for tenure and earned it, I was eligible for full professor because I had the years of rank at associate. And so I, I was promoted to full professor based on my research mostly, uh, and, um, it won a teaching award in those first couple of years here. Um, wow. but then right away was sort of tapped, uh, by the, um, by the Dean at the time we had a Dean of all the faculty, uh, at, at that time, uh, to be a division chairperson. The college was organized in four divisions. It was sort of a halftime administrative position. And, and I agreed because I was asked. It was a nice thing to be asked. Uh, it was a service. Um, and then when the new provost came, um, uh, well, I, let me back up real quickly. I was asked to chair the search for the new the committee 
uh, to search for the new provost. Uh, when the Dean of Faculty and Vice President of Academic Affairs left after 22 years of service, we um, hired a search firm as you do and, and put a search committee together and the president asked me to chair. And I told the president at the time, I think we need to have a conversation on, on campus about whether or not this person could be Dean of all the faculty. Um, when I came here in 2005, the faculty was maybe 80 people. Um, today, it's like 155 or 160. And, even, and by that time, even 10 years ago, it was in the 120s. I just said, I don't think, you know, our, our current dean was spending five and a half days on campus. He'd come in every Saturday morning and work. And this is somebody who knew the place inside and out and had worked here for 20 years, didn't have any kids at home, whatever. I said, you can get somebody here. They're never going to be able to do the job. And I remember the president said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, they're going to get a nice salary or whatever. And it was. Uh, I said, okay. So we searched for uh, a dean of dean of faculty and vice president for academic affairs, uh, and, we, and we got somebody great. Um, and and of course, uh, you know, within weeks of him being here, he says to the president, "This is ridiculous. I can't do. It. We have to have deans, especially because you want growth. You want to have new programs. You want to do new things." And so he restructured the college into a college of arts and sciences, which is, as you'd imagine, seventy five percent of the students, seventy five percent of the faculty, and then two pre professional schools: school of business. School of Education and Health Sciences, uh, all three of us, then and a dean for each. So then he says, well, we got to go get deans. And I said, yes, let's go, let's go get some deans. Let's go get some of those. Uh, and the provost said, you got almost a brand new president. You got a brand new provost. We need to do an internal search for deans. We need, faculty need somebody that they can trust. And of course, in fairness, what he also meant was he needed somebody to help sell <laughs> the, the changes he wanted to help make, uh, you know, using the, the uh, capital that, that we had built up. And it was a good, it was a good strategy. I threw my name in. Uh, went through a, a process, full faculty uh, forums, lots of meetings, two-day process, and I was ultimately selected. That was seven years ago. You know, when you do that department chair to academic leader, that's a that's a weird jump. I know when I did that, that just that's a hard thing because you know this is it. You're officially taking, or as I was, it was referred to me as you're going to the dark side. I guess the dark side. Yeah. So how was that Star Wars references? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how, how was that for you when you made that transition? It was difficult. And I would tell you, it's still difficult uh, seven years in for different reasons. It was difficult at first because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, when I sort of very seriously said in that meeting to the provost, let's go get some deans. What I had in mind was we'll get somebody who knows how to be a dean. Uh, somebody who's been a department chair of a large department or somebody who's been at least a full-time administrator, maybe somebody who's been a dean at a, at a college, but once, you know, one of the things I learned just as an aside, when we searched for the provost is people want to be here in this geographic location. People will take a lateral move to be in a place that they enjoy living more. So I thought there have got to be deans of arts and sciences in places where, you know, they're, they're maybe not as attractive geographically. We could get somebody. Um, but because I think the hard part was I just didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know how to do it. The other hard part was, as the inaugural dean of arts and sciences, the faculty didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what to do with me because we had a provost now who was sitting in the office where the dean used to be, but wasn't the dean anymore. Now I was the dean. So what was what what things were left for me to do, especially when I didn't know what I was doing? What things are going to be left for the provost to decide or to do? Uh, where do you complain when you need to complain about something? Where do you ask if you need to ask about something? Where do you get counsel uh, if you need it? Um, so there was a learning curve there, and I got a lot of help um, from outside organizations, from my provost, who was an excellent mentor, continues to be, I should say. Um, but now it's hard. Now, I know what I'm doing now. I feel like it not, maybe the faculty don't all agree. We can do a poll. But I feel like I know what I'm doing now. The problem, the, the thing that's hard now is, um, even after seven years, for all the value that came with having relationships 
and moving these important initiatives through to make the college stronger. And we did. I mean, the faculty no longer advise students. They mentor only. The faculty have a five-course teaching load, which is for a, for a small college is a really great teaching load. Lots of support, you know, some paid sabbaticals, all these things. But it's still that I was just Stephen down the hall. I was just a political scientist friend that you went to lunch with. And now I got to give bad news sometimes. And now I got to make hard decisions sometimes. And I think, you know, if, if I was coming into a place as the dean, um, people respond to that differently. Um, you know, it's, it's so, so there, I think interpersonally, uh, it's been, it's been quite a challenge. You know, we reflect back on it now. I think even the folks that were here at the time would agree that those changes were mostly the right thing to do. They were good. Life is better here as a result of them. But in the moment, any change is scary and it didn't feel like it was right. People were committed to that quarter calendar, even though it was a seven course teaching load. People were committed to three hour courses. A lot of people still wish that they were advising students. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like directly. Yeah. So there's everybody didn't have buy in. And so helping to navigate a time of extreme change while the world was challenging for small colleges, even before the pandemic. And then you lay the pandemic on top of it. We also are a very traditional college in the sense that um, before about six years ago, we didn't have one online course. So forget oh. about online programs. We didn't even have any online courses. Thankfully, the provost um, got us underway, got a center set up, got an instructional designer hired prior to the pandemic. So we were ready to hit the ground running. I don't know what would have happened if that pandemic would have come five or six years earlier. We were not ready. Yeah, yeah. We would not have been ready. Well, what's been some of the proudest moments for you there at the college? Oh, I got to be honest, the, the, the proudest moment for me has nothing to do with being dean. My daughter graduated in May. Oh, that's, a, that's, a great, really, that's a great thing to say. Yeah, it's just so great. And I'm and I'm proud of her, of course, but I'm also proud that she has a degree from North Central College. I really yeah. believe in this place. I think we um we do a great job of of, of adhering to a, a liberal arts core uh, while, um you know, meeting students where they are in terms of where their desires are uh, as 17 year olds or where their parents are as folks who might not have gone to college and um, looking for that first job, but also teaching them for life. And so I think she's got a great foundation. She's in graduate school now. And um, so that was my proudest moment uh, at the college. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, I don't want to sound too sappy, uh, but I got to tell you, when I sit at the end of the year at the awards ceremony and so many faculty that I've worked with closely, many of whom I've hired now at this point, uh, are winning teaching awards or winning research awards or getting books published. Um, you know, I, I feel, I feel proud, uh, at those moments. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, you're always proud of students when they achieve, um, is sometimes immediately, sometimes, you know, at those award ceremonies at the end, but, um, you know, a student comes back 10 years, it wasn't a star student, wasn't PhD bound, wasn't one of the, but has a great career, has a great family, was grateful for the education they got here. It makes me feel not just proud of them, but also, again, proud of the institution that gave them uh, a really good start and, and helped them get on track for a, a life that may disrupt cycles of poverty in their family. And uh, again, not to be grandiose about it, but uh, I think, you know, those there's the small moments that remind you why we do what we do. Well, what's been some of the lessons you've learned along the way as an academic leader? What has it been seven years as a, as a dean now? Seven years as dean, yeah. Uh, look, um, um, I think, you know, there's no delicate way to put some of these things, uh, but um, one of the things that on a regular basis, almost certainly a weekly basis, maybe a daily basis, I have to remember um, is that your emergency is not my emergency. <laughs> And so you can imagine a college of arts and sciences, I've got about 110 fac full-time faculty. Um, and I have department chairs uh, who are excellent, uh, but I've got 17 of them. And that's a big group. Just if I was just thinking about the department chairs. Um, 
And I can't tell you how many times somebody's come over here and sat in my office and said, we got a huge problem. Um, and they left and I thought, oh, it's not that huge of a problem. <laughs> like, it's a problem. And I understand how it must feel that way. But uh, number one, I don't think we need to jump on this within the next 30 minutes. I think we can sleep on it and come back to it in the morning. And, and secondly, I, you know, I can see a number of possible ways that we can get through this uh, without much, much. But but um, that's my job is to sort of uh, lower the temperature, uh, to, to sort of de-escalate uh, when there's conflict. And um, uh, it's not my nature necessarily. I was uh, I come from the East. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm, I talk fast. I talk over people, which I had in the Midwest. You really got to learn not to do. <laughs> and there's a gender component to that too. It's really important for me not to talk over women, for instance. Uh, but in my family, that wasn't the thing. Everybody's just like, you know, <laughs> you talk or you eat, or you don't get to talk or eat. You know, I mean, that's the way it goes. Um, but my instinct is to to solve, and um, that's the best part about being dean. I think is that I get to help solve problems. But I had to learn to slow down, not try to solve them in the moment immediately. Sit with them calm folks down, put forth a number of possibilities, and then help come to a solution. And so I think it's it's been great. And I, I think, um, you know, I would say my wife probably appreciates that I learned those things too, because the same thing in your personal life, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of my tendency would be if she comes to me with something, I just want to fix it right away. And I've learned to really slow down and, 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 and hear what the problems are and then think them through and be more deliberate. And so um, that's worked out well. Yeah, I would say that if, if I put on my faculty hat, you know, it is, yeah. it is an emergency. And so it's nice since you came from this group that, that you can appreciate where they're coming from, but you got to kind of bring them back into reality. Yeah. And I think they calm, they, they, you know, I would think, I would think that what they would say is if you ask faculty who have, who have come through with one of those things, they'd say they felt better when they left. They felt like somebody had their back. They, they felt like they weren't alone in it anymore and they felt like it was going to be okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think if that was disingenuous, that would only work the first couple of times <laughs> they, they'd leave and go, he always makes me feel like that, but it never works out. But, uh, but it usually does work out and and, and we can get there and, uh, it's a good community here too. I mean, you know, leadership is one thing, but I mean, there's, um, there's a culture here of collaboration, uh, not just with the faculty, but with the, all the, you know, the, the tremendously talented and important staff folks we have here that can, um, you know, hold fast to important rules, uh, maintain our accreditation, all those things, but also find ways to to be practical when we need to. Yeah. Do you have any advice for a new college dean? Yeah, I mean, I guess my, um, <clears throat> it would be hard for me to advise somebody who um, was a department chair and got hired to be a dean at a new place, because I haven't experienced that. So I think it's somebody who was hired internally, uh, like I have. Um, yeah, there's probably a number of things that I would suggest. Um, and uh, the first of which is to expand one's network. I, I got good advice on that. And I really got by getting plugged into uh, the American Conference of Academic Deans and the Council of Colleges of Arts and Sciences and the, and the College of Ind Council of Independent Colleges deans groups. Um, it's, it's refreshing. I mean, sometimes those emails come through and I delete them pretty quickly. But just to see that people are struggling with similar things, get to get their advice and just Remember that you're not alone. I mean, there's three of us academic deans here, but as you can imagine, um, there's a there's a small solution set or a small. If you think about a Venn diagram of the things, the problems or the um, issues that arise that intersect with me and the business dean or me and the health sciences dean, there are certainly some of those. But some of these are just a function of arts and sciences faculty and, and the kind of uh, issues that we're dealing with enrollment. Uh, dips and so forth that they're not they're not seeing in those pre-professional areas. And so feeling like I'm connected with other arts and sciences deans in particular, um, I, I would I would advise anybody who's moving into this kind of position to 
um, to, to get connected because it helps go to the meetings too, not just the listservs, but go to the meetings. And I, I do that. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that colleges will face over the next five years? I haven't given much thought to what like flagship schools or even uh, larger public regional institutions will face. I don't, I don't know exactly. I'm, I'm focused. So my answer, I just want to contextualize is centered more on the small private college experience and specifically the small sort of non-elite. I don't know what's, I don't know what Vassar's got coming down the plane. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, but uh, for schools like us, and there's lots of them, as you know, and, and great ones. I mean, that's the, one of the things that, you know, when I went to college, uh, because my parents didn't go, I went to a public school because that's what I thought I could afford. I didn't know I could afford a place like this. I, di- I didn't know. Uh, I didn't even know a lot of places like this e- existed because their football teams weren't on television. Like, you know, you just don't know things like this when your parents don't go to college. Um, I really wish I would have gone to a place like that. I mean, the school I went to was fine. I mean, I got a great, it was more than fine. I had a great experience there, but I would have really thrived in a place um I would have really thrived at a place like this. So um, I think continuing to make sure that we uh, let folks know um, that it's accessible to go to a private mm-hmm. college, that it doesn't have to be cost prohibitive and that there might be benefits. It's not for everybody. I mean, there's some people who will thrive, you know, being in a 300 person classroom. I mean, it's, it seems ridiculous because you always talk about the folks who struggle in those, but some people do really, really well in those environments and, and feel better in their first couple of years in college, kind of being a little more anonymous or being part of the Greek system or whatever they need to do, um, where other students are going to get lost in that and, and may not make it. And, you know, the thing that I always tell folks, the thing that troubles me the most is a student leaving college without a degree and having debt. Like, that's the worst. Like, not going to college is fine. There's lots of paths uh, to, you know, to uh, to having a good life without going to college. Uh, and uh, but I think, you know, going and trying and accumulating debt that you have to pay back and then not having, um, you know, the currency that that moves with it, if you'll excuse the pun, um, that that's that's hard for me. So, you know, I always am looking for persistence and trying to get our persistence rates up, um, you know, making sure that we're accepting students who we're giving a chance to, but aren't going to struggle too much here. Um, and just knowing that for small schools like us, uh, the, the enrollment declines are really tied to population dips and growth. You know, I mean, we're right in the the beginning of a dip as a result of the 2008 recession. Um, we're going to start to see a decline in, in Illinois for sure. And you can see, you know, you know, the state, the Sunbelt states aren't going to have any problems, right? We know the population is growing in those places, but in the North, um, uh, in particular parts of the North and the Midwest, um, I think that's going to be an issue and figuring out how, how do we pay the bills? How do we how do we attract the best faculty at the best salaries and the best staff people at the best salaries, keep tuition reasonable so students don't go bankrupt having to come here, uh, but have enough students come uh, that we can afford to have all the programming that we have and give them the best experience without, you know, having, you know, 60 seat classrooms. Uh, You know, we want to keep the classroom small. All those things uh, can be at odds with one another. And so the financial realities, I think, um, all related to enrollment uh, for small colleges are are the biggest challenges ahead of us. Well, what will opportunities then look like for you guys? Well, as is often the case, as you know, I mean, opportunities are often the the other side of the coin from challenges. Um, And so I think, you know, um, this is, uh, I'll start with a naive one and then be a little more practical. The naive one is, I think there's an opportunity to continue to educate the public about the importance of the liberal arts uh, and what the liberal arts means, what a liberal education means. Uh, we had a, con- a really bright, um, uh, uh, really effective consulting group come through here a few years ago and helped us with some branding. Um, some of it was logo, you know, just updating logos, freshening and so forth. But some of it was, you know, they did really extensive focus groups and surveys 
And and one of the the final advice they had for us was, well, they would ask us, you know, how do you describe North Central College? And almost all of us would say we're a small private liberal arts college. And after all their research, and and not just the research about North Central, but the research that they've done as a as a uh, as a, a firm, you know, small means not in as many opportunities. Private means too expensive, and liberal arts means liberal <laughs> to, to a lot of folks. And so we all know what all these things mean. We know that they don't mean those things, um, but it doesn't do any good. And the faculty here um, really balked at the suggestion that we stop calling ourselves a liberal arts college, stop using the term liberal arts. And it might surprise you to hear that I wasn't so offended by that. I, I'm I'm a deeply committed to the liberal arts. But what I said to the faculty was, I don't have a, such a problem with you using the word, first of all, they were talking about external audiences, by the way. We, we have liberal arts all over the place once you get here. They're talking about attracting students from the outside. I said, if you're going out at visit days or you're going to high schools or you're going to you know our arts department to recruit at different events, if you're going out just saying liberal arts and then moving on, you're not doing any good anyway. Whether or not they conflate that with liberal ideologically or not, nobody knows what it means. So if you want to say liberal arts, say it, but then say what that means. Talk about core skills and talk about critical thinking and talk about what it means to learn for your lifetime. And talk, You have to do more than just drop the term. We can drop it with each other because it's a symbol. We know what it means. It's shortcut. You know, it's a heuristic for all sorts of things. But it doesn't work like that in the mass public, particularly when we're talking about, you know, uh, demographic uh, groups like um, first generation prospective students. So I wasn't so offended. Um, but I, on the flip side of that, I think the argument is we have an opportunity to educate the public. Uh, on, on the long history of, of why liberal education matters, why it's important. And from what we're seeing in Florida and other places where we're seeing uh, political conservatives in particular kind of leveraging uh, the notion of the liberal arts to suggest that it's an indoctrination toward leftist uh, voting patterns, for instance, we really have a, a responsibility to push back against that. And I see that as an opportunity as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I think it's great that you have a pretty good focus on explaining what liberal arts mean, just not throwing out the term. Cause I, I hear that by a lot of people, you're in your own core group and you don't, so you know what you mean, but you're talking to other individuals who have no idea really what that means to the college. So that's an excellent point, Steve. And, and honestly, I would say just if I could, on top of that, I don't know that we all completely agree. You know, we say it enough so much that we think we all know what we're talking about, but I think there's some internal validity problems as well, right? In other words, for some people, it's just the humanities and social sciences and they take STEM completely out of the liberal. Well, of course you go back to antiquity. That's not true at all. Part of the liberal education was geography and, and astronomy. I mean, and this was like, um, uh, and, and so we, we have to understand that it's arts and sciences, you know, the, the thinking, learning to think like a scientist and understanding our natural world is a very important part of that kind of broader intellectual growth. And so it's not it's not um, it's not a, a shortcut to just talk about the humanities. Uh, it's it's really about, you know, anything that doesn't lead directly to a particular profession, but trains one for life, not only life as a profession, but life as a citizen as well. Um, that's what the liberal arts is all about. Well, what do you think's been learned about online education since the pandemic? And how do you see this platform evolving over time for both faculty and staff in the future? I feel like I have a really good um, or, or unique, I won't say good. That's a, I don't mean to, to, to cast it in that light, but at least a unique uh, perspective here, because as I said, we had just started to flirt with the notion of online and there was no mandate really. There wasn't a mandate from the, from the trustees. There wasn't a mandate from cabinet or the provost. Um, it really came from, you know, not just me, but I, you know, as I was meeting with 
you know, one of the great things is, Dean, is you, you, you meet with the um, prospective candidates, faculty candidates, and you sit with them, and young people who are excited about their dissertations and excited about getting, and they, and they applied here because they're excited about undergraduates and excited about teaching, right? Not, not only their research. And they came with this exuberance from graduate school about what they could do in an online platform. And, oh, I learned how to do this. And there's, the, you know, we can really pull kids out of their shells if you ask this and if you do, and you can use this kind of forum. And I'd have to sit there and nod and at the end say, we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't do that here. We, you know, we prop against the tree with a book and we sit in a circle and we, um, and, and that's oversimplifying it, but we weren't doing anything online. Now that doesn't mean that we weren't, we were, a, we were a blackboard campus for many years and faculty used those mechanisms, discussion boards, you know, when they wanted to, but we didn't have anything that was fully online. And what we started to do was just open it up. Uh, we hired an instructional designer and said, anybody who wants to do this, talk to your department chair, talk to the dean, and see if you want to move a course to online. We didn't get a ton of people doing it, but it, but we got some. And I was, it's surprising. It wasn't only the young faculty. There were some senior people going, you know, I've been hearing about this on my networks, and I kind of want to try some things. And we did that for a couple of years, and then the pandemic hit. And again, we had we had infrastructure in place in terms of uh, having a, a good course management system and an instructional designer that could help us pivot I'm not going to suggest we did it all right. No college did it all right in 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 March of 2020, <laughs> but we we got it together in the next year in particular, where we were still delivering a healthy portion of our courses uh, remotely, um, largely because we didn't have the spaces on campus to spread people out. I mean, that was really it. It wasn't that there was much of a demand for staying at home. Uh, students wanted to be on campus, but we, you know, in a 30 person class, we only had a few spaces where we could really, you know, keep them six feet apart. Um, so. Um, I think that we've learned that there's there's a lot of value, but there's also some pitfalls. I mean, I think the equity issues that that came up in terms of students not having access to high speed internet or the kind of uh, hardware that is needed to access uh, students maybe being uh, nervous about or um, even embarrassed about having their cameras on uh, when they were at home or because they didn't have internet at home, they were in their cars and didn't want people to know that. I mean, I think, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, folks weren't thinking about those things when they were requiring students to put their cameras on or or really criticizing them for not participating. Um, so th that was a good aspect of, of our, our, our move toward equity, I think. Um, you know, we wouldn't wish for a pandemic, but if you're looking for some good things to come out of it, yeah. um, I think, uh, you know, uh, effective use of online technologies and um, how they contribute or detract uh, from your goals of equity was an important part of that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about non-traditional students. Um, you know, they they struggle a lot at colleges and universities just because, you know, they're, and, I'm, and when I refer to uh, non-traditional, I'll just talk about older adults coming back to coming back to college. So what can be done for the specific student population? I remember being an undergraduate and having like uh, what I thought were old people in my class. They were probably in their thirties, <laughs> but, but to me, it seemed like they were ancient. Uh, yeah. I don't know what they're talking about Vietnam and stuff, but uh, what the heck are you talking about? Um, and I remember, like, I have vivid memories of thinking at first, what's this person doing here? And then really quickly, uh, like for a couple classes in going, man, this is really changing the conversation. And this is really cool. And this is like, wow, what an interesting thing. And even when I came to North Central in 2005, we had um, we had just moved away from having a weekend college which was designed for, you know, students who, who worked full time or had families or whatever. We, that wasn't going real well. People weren't like, and, and the reason it wasn't was because folks were doing online 
You know what I'm saying? Like, they, in other words, they stopped going weekend because they could go online. They didn't even have to leave their house. So we weren't doing online. So we kind of closed that down. But we still had this um, um, kind of a leftover um, time slot. We called the jumbo time slot. It was 6.30, 6, 6.30 p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m., one day a week. And um, the idea was if you still had some of those students, we offered a number of courses in that time slot every every term. So they could come and take classes there. And, and there were a few programs where you could take your whole curriculum that way. We made sure there were the classes were in the right place. Well, um, because they hired two people uh, for one job when I got here, there weren't enough political science classes for both of us to teach. And I was asked to teach some classes in sort of interdisciplinary areas that were kind of tangential to my expertise. Um, and they were a couple of more offered in the evening. And I realized quickly um, a couple of things. First of all, it was a different dynamic because there were non-traditional age students in that class, uh, in those sections often. But not only that, there were also traditional age students. And I would sometimes ask them, why'd you take this as jumbo? We're offering this class Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 920 or whatever. Uh, and they'd say various things. Sometimes they were athletes uh, and they and they wanted their daytimes free. Uh, other times um, they just um, like the convenience. You know, and for me as an instructor, and I still feel this way. We don't have any once a week time slots anymore. Uh, we don't do the nighttime because, you know, it's just, you know, it's not great for students to stay out late sometimes and they don't want to do it as much. But I like the one day a week because you can assign a whole book and then read it. You know what I mean? Come back and you read the book, come back and then we'll talk about the book. And we got two and a half hours or two hours and 40 minutes or whatever um, to do it. So I think, you know, there's there's um, th th I, as the students sort of stop being non-traditional age at North Central, we've kind of moved away from those things. But what's interesting is, Right before the pandemic, the provost made a task force on transfer and degree completion, because we've always had a lot of transfer students. That's pretty typical. But we know that there's a market for degree completion. Students who left for whatever reason didn't finish a degree. And there's a lot of schools that have been much more effective than we have been to reaching them. And then it's not just reaching them. It's making sure that we have a path, that there's not systemic barriers to their completion. You know, we have, for instance, a very... Um, uh, uh, innovative general education curriculum. That's a four year. It's not just you do stuff in the first two years and then take your major. It goes the whole way through. That's hard for transfers. They don't want, they, they you know what I mean? We got to figure out ways around that for them. And it's hard for degree completion folks who, you know, you don't need them in a class on how to be a college student, you know, in the, in the first year writing seminar and, you know, with all the other 17 and 18 year olds, for instance. So um, I think there are challenges that are related to institutional inertia. And, and the fact that we have mostly focused on, you know, for whatever, whether it's financial or other reasons, the four-year traditional age student. Uh, but I think there's a lot of opportunities for, for small private colleges in particular, um, because community colleges have done great with non-traditional age students, as you well know. And, and a lot of the regional, uh, the regional schools, the public schools have, have done well. Um, but again, for, for both reasons, either that folks don't think about the private colleges for these things, and also the colleges aren't structured really to, to serve them, uh, but there's opportunities for us to do better. Yeah. Well, good point. Um, a lot of colleges right now are focusing their attention on the mental health of students. What can campuses do to tackle this problem? It's... This is a this is largely a resource question, but it's not only a resource question. Um, there are so many. I will tell you that as, as a point of background, um, uh, my wife is a clinical psychologist in private practice here in Chicago, and she. Um, but during her doctoral training, I think she thought she'd go into college counseling. She was most interested in that, um, 
And her doctoral dissertation was on faculty responses to students' mental health. Uh, she did all of her um, pre-doctoral and post-doctoral training on site at college campuses. And so, so that's the sort of, so I know a little bit more about this from her side, as well as from a faculty member and now a dean perspective. And I can tell you, there's so many different models of mental health counseling centers at colleges. Um, and, you know, as I said, my wife trained at some of these because they would have doctoral training. Uh, but a lot of colleges, you, you can't have doctoral training unless you have doctoral level people working there. And that's more expensive, of course, than hiring master's level people to work in your counseling center. And so you might have master's level trainees, but you don't have doctoral level trainees. Um, and so, you know, it's not just about how many staff positions you have. Uh, some staff positions come pretty cheap if you do internships and training those positions, those people. But then the people that have to supervise them may cost a little more money. So yeah, it, it, there's all kinds of different structures to use. And I think schools probably need to be um, attentive and mindful about um, capacity um, and also, the, you know, the quality of the, you know, some folks just need help getting through um, test anxiety. And I say just not to trivialize it, but to say that's the one thing that's problematic for them, that it's not a whole, you know, connected to a lot of deep rooted things. Others need therapy. You know, meaningful therapy. I'm not talking about analysis, <laughs> Woody Allen kind of three times a week with that. But I mean, they need a uh, longer term. They need to see somebody once every couple of weeks for, for a long time. Um, the other thing that's changed, as you know, of course, is that students are coming to us with diagnoses that they had they didn't 20 years ago. Um, they've been in therapy. Um, you know, when before they got to us and and, um, and if they're far, far away from home, they may not be able to continue with the therapist that they that they've had. That may all change, of course, with with online therapy and the way things are moving, you know, with the, with the health providers. But um, I think that we've done a good job of tree, not just North Central, but I think colleges have done a de decent job of triaging, of identifying problems when they when they come up, helping students get through tough spots and then referring them out. Uh, to, to third party, you know, treatment facilities when it's when it's dire, when they can't handle it. But I think there's that we're at a point where we need to really think about um, and not just students, by the way, staff and faculty as well, ongoing mental health. Um, you know, we're, we're focusing on it at the college. But I will tell you that part of the problem is is, is the way that um, insurance companies uh, reimburse uh, for mental health or the networks that you're, or how many, you know, visits you're allowed to have, et cetera. Those are all things that sometimes are, are they're more financial decisions. But if you think about the broad health of the faculty staff uh, on your, on your, on your, in your company, whatever it is, or your, your not-for-profit institution, um, the kind of healthcare you pick um, ha has a lot to do uh, with whether folks are going to get the support that they need as well. So I know you were asking mostly about students, I think, but I just wanted to add that piece in there too, because I think, um, uh, you know, we're all, we're all, especially after the pandemic, I think we all are dealing with things that we hadn't before. Yeah. You know, that's really a good point is I remember way, way back when as a faculty member, I remember my insurance would give me like three times for mental health to, for visits. Like really, you know, tell me what my problem is and then say, good luck with that. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just not enough, right? It's yeah. just not uh, so in other words, they, they can advertise that they give mental health uh, coverage, but they're not doing anything meaningful uh, right. to do it. So yeah. that's right. Well, what about campus safety? You know, that's all in the press right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in the press for lots of reasons. I mean, we th think about uh, uh, violence on campus and the potential for violence. Um, you know, what makes the news most is, is sort of shootings or, or you know, kind of those type of things. But a sexual violence is something that colleges have dealt with for a long, long time. Uh, we deal with them differently than we used to, which is good. In other words, we have better reporting structures. We have less stigma for reporting, but there's still structural barriers uh, to, to justice for victims of, of sexual abuse, sexual violence, sexual harassment uh, that need to be addressed. Um, 
again, as with the counseling centers, campus safety models are so different from college to college, ranging all the way from some campuses that don't have any that rely on the local police departments uh, to, 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 you know, the bigger schools that have their own com complete police forces, and then anything in between. Uh, sometimes they're armed, sometimes they're not. Sometimes, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different um, uh, approaches. You know, it, it you hope that the biggest problems your college has is, is a, a drunk kid in the dorm setting the fire alarm off, right? Those are the, those are the problems that you expect you're going to have, have to deal with. But there are much more significant problems um, to deal with as well. And I, I know that as, as a parent who, who went around and looked at a lot of different colleges with my daughter, even, even though she ended up settling on North Central, um, we were all over the country. And, and uh, a lot of the questions that I heard asked uh, in the groups that I was in from parents it was about safety. I mean, folks are nervous about sending their kids away when they, they've lived with them for 17 or 18 years and they were able to feel like they could protect them, especially if they, they are coming from a large city. Uh, and now they're sending them off and they, and they want to feel a sense of protection. And, and in fact, that's valid. Students deserve to feel safe. Uh, while they're, we all deserve to feel safe where, where we move about. Um, uh, but as you're learning to be an adult, as you're sort of emerging in that transition period from being a kid in your parents' home to, to sort of living on your own, college is oftentimes the transition point for that. And um, to add in a, a threat of violence um, makes things a lot worse. And so I think, um, you know, I don't have any great answers here. It's not kind of kind of in my in my portfolio to problem solve there, but I think about it a, a good bit and I try to be a good partner whenever I'm asked to. Well, if you had extra budget money right now with no strings attached at all, how would you spend it? Ah. No strings attached. I know. That's, uh, you never heard look, that in, I mean, um, in your position, have you? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, I, I think, look, uh, I, this is the terrible professor answer that you, that you, you know, as, as, a, as a professor yourself, you would understand. Um, it, it's one thing to say I have a pool of money that I can spend right now. It's another thing to say I have a budget infusion that will be there in, in subsequent years. So in other words, for instance, if I had a budget infusion that will be there for subsequent years, um, I would invest in uh, student scholarship money to try to reduce the cost of, of college for students uh, and faculty salaries. Um but if I just had a pool of money that was just for once, you know, giving bonuses to all the faculty, you know, isn't going to, I mean, that's great for this year, but then everybody goes back to what their salary was the next year. So I think if it was a pot of money that I only had uh, for right now, I would look for some, um, some sort of mid-range capital projects. Um, we, let me give you an example. Um, we just um, built a, a piano lab uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, for our music students and our theater students. And so, you know, for the longest time um, I, until this year, Students who who took piano at North Central took private lessons, and and they had to pay for those. Now they didn't pay the same price they pay in the market. We subsidized it, but we had to pay the instructors the same price they would get in the market. Otherwise, we wouldn't get any. You know what I mean? You get the worst piano instructors in town. You don't want that. Um, but we we realized that not not only is that cost uh, problematic for the students and not great for us. Um, but the cost of keeping that many pianos uh, maintained uh, is is quite expensive. Furthermore. Uh, pedagogically, uh, we've we've gotten to the point um, where the, the the best pedagogical models are group models, and so you know we have a lab now with 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 sixteen pianos, and they're really nice. I mean, we didn't we went for the expensive ones because they should feel like real pianos, but they're electronic, uh, but they've got pedals and they, they 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 have weighted keys. They feel like real pianos, but the instructor station has um, a camera above the instructor's hands. Uh, on their station. And it has an iPad that allows the instructor to select which person he or she is listening to or, or combinations of people, or you can, you know, listen. So it's really um, for the learning of piano, it's much more effective. Well, you know, 
it was about a hundred thousand uh, dollars for us to put that up, and we'll have to pay continually to maintain. But but it's uh, up front; it was a lot of money. Uh, we had a very generous gift uh, from a, from a donor that helped offset that cost tremendously, a naming gift, which was lovely. But I think that there's a number of things around campus. Um, you can imagine, as I started four-year engineering programs, we needed labs, and we need a lot of equipment for those labs. Um, again, we have partnerships; we got donations, but we spent a lot of money uh, as well. Um, all that money came back to us. It's an investment in terms of students. I always say to everybody who asks about the cost of engineering, the students that come to us to study engineering would not have come to North Central otherwise. This isn't like, you know, we, if we were looking at a film major, for instance, and my, my charge to that group is it's got to be students. It can't be just students who were going to come study English. Now they're going to study film. That we can't invest that if the flat if it's just gonna we engineering students want they're pre-professional they want to be engineers and if we don't have engineering they're gonna go somewhere where there is so I can think about we had about 150 of them on campus now that would have been somewhere else and so you know over four years that completely offsets the investments that we needed to make um, but there's other places that won't be the case um, and the arts are expensive you know we need new we, we could use a new concert piano for instance in our in our main concert hall. Um, that's a quarter million dollars, you know, or more for, for a really good one. So I think if it was a one shot option, I'd, I'd probably make some capital investments like middle, middle level capital investments. Um, but if it was longer term, I would invest in students and faculty. Okay. Here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? I haven't had a, I haven't had a, um, a lot of there's some good books. Uh, you know, CCAS has this uh, organizing academic colleges, a guide for deans, which is a, which is a nice book. And, and in my first couple of years, I referenced it now and again. So to get started, I think that was good. I really think I would say two things. Um, joining those organizations that I mentioned have been the best uh, uh, education, rather than a particular volume. Uh, going to the meetings, being on the listservs, and and even knowing as a result of the listservs sometimes somebody will say something and you'll realize you have a lot in common with them. You can reach out to them directly. Now you've got a buddy, you know, at, at a similar college somewhere else in the country. Um, we also have a consortium of colleges in the Chicagoland area that I'm uh, that, uh, small private colleges uh, in the Chicagoland area that I'm connected to. So those things help a lot, even more than a particular volume. The other thing I'd say is that, um, you know, I mentioned that when I came, there weren't enough political sciences classes for me to teach, and they put me in a leadership class. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> Maybe it was foreshadowing for what was going to happen to me, uh, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but the leadership class was a, a it was a seminar that met an all college requirement for leadership ethics and values. That was our that was the that was the category, and so it could be taught any way you wanted. It was a shell just called leadership seminar and leadership. So I had like my colleague in history, American historian, would just teach Lincoln. Right. And she, she taught all about Lincoln. And it was a really cool thing. Well, I'm a social scientist, political scientist by training. And um, and I, I, I research inequity and, and, and inequality. Um, and I decided to structure my uh, section around bad leadership. <laughs> so Barbara Kellerman at Harvard sort of writes about leadership in, in a way that says, you know, you can have bad leadership like ineffective. But what if it is very effective, but it's morally problematic? And so we start that course with the uh, Milgram experiment on obedience, right? The shockboard experiment, right? Where, you know, good people, ordinary people uh, are following the instructions of somebody and, and think that they're shocking uh, a person over and over and over again. And it reminds us, of course, that, that our human nature can't be counted on to protect us from doing bad things. And so I, I think a lot about um, nothing as dramatic as shocking somebody on a shockboard. But, um, you know, we think about these corporate scandals uh, that have happened over and over again. And, and people, we just had the uh, the uh, the NFT 
you know, a, a bankruptcy for whatever, right? And the, the, the guy is going to go to prison because, you know, he, he bankrupted all these people. Uh, how, how do you get, you know, all of us are going to be in positions either as leaders or as followers to sort of break off at some point if, if we're being, if we're going down the wrong path. And I think it's really important for deans um, to, to, to consider, you know, cause it's easy to do one of, it's easy to sometimes follow the crowd because you know, they're going to be, you're going to have a lot of support and then you, you, you join in with criticizing upper administration uh, or you can just follow the people who put you there. You know, I serve at the will of the provost. So it's hard for me to criticize the provost, although I can do so with the door closed. Um, uh, it's easy for me to just hold the line and, uh, and, and then talk, tell the faculty, this is how it's going to be. And I think knowing when to do which thing uh, and knowing when to stand on your own and maybe and maybe say, I have another path that I think we should follow. Mm-hmm. Holding fast to your convictions with having while having enough humility uh, to know that you're probably not right about everything is really important, too. So I think those leadership books that aren't so much self-help books, but really dive into the philosophy of leadership and the, um, and the, and the social science behind uh, what, you know, what it means uh, to lead or to follow uh, can be just as helpful as a book that's specifically written for academic leaders. Well, those are nice comments to end our program today. Uh, Stephen, thanks so I, I much. I really for appreciate being... you inviting me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. This this was really a fun conversation. Thank you, Dr. Gretchen. It was great to be with you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.